Hello and welcome to the Rob Burgess Show. I am, of course, your host, Rob Burgess. On this, our 53rd episode, our guest is Lewis Moore. Lewis Moore is an associate professor of history at Grand Valley State University, where he teaches African American history, sports history, and gender history. He graduated with a BA from California State University, Sacramento in 2001, an MA from the University of California, Davis in 2005, and a PhD from the University of California, Davis in 2008. You can follow him on Twitter at www.twitter.com forward slash Lou Moore 12. That's L-O-U-M-O-O-R-E 1-2. And now on to the show. Hello, Lewis Moore. Hey, it's Rob Burgess. How you doing? I'm doing fine. How are you, Rob? Good, good. Uh, thanks for taking the time this morning. I appreciate it. No worries. Just here in my office before we uh, got to go teach in a little bit. So. Ah, okay, okay. So for people who don't know who you are, just go ahead and explain a little bit about yourself to start off with here. Uh, my name is Lewis Moore. I'm Associate Professor of History at Grand Valley State University. I'm also the coordinator of African African American Studies. Um, I primarily study sports and race um, and, and mainly look at the black athlete. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the reasons I started following your Twitter account, which is great, uh, is that you have all these uh, really good uh, old newspaper clippings uh, that you have uh, posted. Um, you're really good about kind of connecting the, the past to the present with those. Uh, what started you looking through those? And it, was it for a project or what was it? Yeah, so it's actually for my second project I'm working on. I actually have two coming out this year. So the first one's a book on black price fighters, which will be from 1880 to 1915. And then the second project um, is a book about the civil rights movement and the, and, and the black athlete. And so the majority of the stuff I post is from the uh, era between 1945 and 1968. And um, what I did over the last two years and what I'm continuing to do is I get um, black newspapers and then I PDF them, you know, from microfilm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I PDF the sports pages and usually um, the editorial pages. Mm-hmm. And then when something comes up, I have notes on it, or and then I'll, I'll post stuff and try to connect it to, to present day history. Right, right. Um, so, what was some of the biggest surprises for you looking back through those? Because I always find when I look through old newspapers, it's sometimes the mundane things that I'm sure they took for granted back then that that we think are absolutely shocking. Yeah, no. Um, in, in regards to sports, I would say um, a few things. One is how how prevalent other sports are that that we don't often talk about. So, what I mean is. There was a lot on bowling. So if you go through a black newspaper in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, you'll see um, whole sections dedicated to bowling. So usually, if the paper had enough money, uh, they would have a writer just to write on the local bowling leagues. Right? Mm. So on the one hand, you'd, you'd have stuff on Jackie Robinson or, or professional baseball players or football players or boxers. On the other hand, there'll be a column on the, on the local community and bowling because bowling was the most popular sport. Um, I think the other thing is the black sports writer, um, very active. So, so today when we think of the black sports writer, we think of, you know, the guys who are at the, uh, ESPN, right? Mainly most of them are at the ESPN and they can say some things and they can't say other things. Um, but back then, not that they couldn't say, I mean, not that they could say what they wanted, but they were really political and they were really active and, and all, a lot of the major movements to integrate sports, to boycott a team, um, to protest something was started by 
black sports writers, and mm. that, that shocked me. Um, they were the ones on the front line first, and then, if, you know, in the context of that activist athlete, um, they're the ones who get them involved. Mm. And then the third thing outside of sports is just how prevalent police brutality was. Um, a lot of um, my, the beginning of this project coincided with the, the start of the Black Lives Matter movement. So, mm-hmm. I mean, so you're always constantly hearing about police brutality today, but it was a regular occurrence. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, front page news in, in the black newspapers, and which was largely missed by like your white daily newspapers, mm-hmm. uh, your New York Times, or your uh, Chicago Tribune. Right. Yeah, I think that's that's been the thing uh, with these uh, police videos uh, that we've been seeing in the last few years. It's it's not that this is a new phenomenon. It's just we're all getting to see it now, and and a lot of places just weren't covering it, like you said before. And now it's just there's no denying it because we all have a camera in our pockets now. So it's kind of undeniable now that you can everyone can record it. But yeah, it was kind of selective back then, I guess. So. But um, so I'm glad you mentioned some of the the, the social movements that kind of come from sports because we're obviously going through a little bit of that right now with Colin Kaepernick. Um, first of all, do you see him in the tradition of Muhammad Ali and, and Tommy Smith and John Carlos and all those people? Yeah, I mean, I mean, he, he's in that tradition, um, and there's a lot of similarities. So these guys, your Ali's, your your Carlos, your Smiths, um, Jackie Robinson, mm-hmm. Bill Russell. A lot of what they were doing happened in the 60s when there was a massive rights movement. Uh, a lot of, you know, young college students getting involved, people across the country getting involved in this movement, gives them some cover. And this is what happens with Kaepernick, right? Um, Kaepernick doesn't happen without the Black Lives Matter movement. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, he, he comes, like, what, two, two and a half years after that. You know, everything's kind of built up, and then it hits them. And that's what you see with some of these athletes who, who get involved um, during the 60s, right? There's a huge civil rights movement. And you'd actually see them saying, like Jackie Robinson, for instance, like, look, if these kids can risk their lives, um, you know, with sit-ins and freedom rides, then, then why can't we as athletes um, speak out? Mm-hmm. Um, and so several athletes, several athletes did this. Um, I think what's different, though, there's a, there's a lot of things different, but one of the main things different is that, you know, Carlos Smith, Ali, these guys were raised in, in, in poverty. Uh, these guys were raised, most of them in segregation, even if you didn't live in the South, right? Mm-hmm. So Ali lives in Louisville. Uh, Carlos is Harlem. Uh, Tommy Smith is rural California, still dealing with segregation and racism. Um, and, and I think that, that fuels them, who they are. Um, but you get the sense of Kaepernick, and this is no knock on him, mm-hmm. that his is a, it's a little different, right? He, he grows up in, I want to say, Turlock, California, mm-hmm. If you're from that area, it's it's essentially between Sacramento and San Francisco on the five in the middle of nowhere. Um, and so his understanding of this is partly, you know, he's probably this, you know, this, this kid who, who grows up in an integrated space and is dealing with race in that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he's also this very successful athlete. But most of his understanding is the movement that mm-hmm. starts around him, right? The Black Lives Matter movement that wakes him up, the readings that he did after. Whereas that wake, uh, well, or, you know, wakes them up. Whereas these other guys kind of grow up in this. Mm-hmm. Um, they grow up in the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. They grow up seeing the daily indignities of, of segregation and what that does to their family and, and the poverty that it creates. And so that's that's the difference. Um, but they're all fighting for the same thing, and I think that's the beautiful part about it. 
body. Mm-hmm. And the sad part, because here we are, what, 40 <laughs> right. years later, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now, there's a situation going on uh, kind of currently here where he's being, would you say he's being blackballed at this point, basically? Um, At this point, and then... Only because you don't know, say that now because he's like, I think he's a great quarterback, right? I mean, mm-hmm. he's not—he's not the best, and, and he struggled. And, and you know, if you looked at, she watched his games last year. They didn't have a lot of talent around him. Mm-hmm. Um, but you see, players that you think are aren't as good as him get signed, and, and that you know, your radar should go off. And mm-hmm. like, Wait a minute, what's happening here? Um, and we know that the NFL didn't like his approach as, as much as they try to kind of be blase about it. They, they didn't like it. And mm-hmm. I, I think a lot of owners are, are going to teach him a lesson. And I think the owners see this as not just teaching Kaepernick a lesson, but the other guy mm-hmm. who might step up and do something. So this is an important battle for them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, now, one thing I kind of on the other side of it, I heard people criticize him for is that uh, I think it was before the election he said something about how Clinton and Trump and everybody's just the same, and uh, I guess he didn't end up voting, and people kind of just used that to be like, oh well, you know, he's saying he stands up for all these things, but when it comes down to it, he doesn't, you know, actually do the work or whatever. What do we do? We fault him at all for that, or can we can we overlook that? I guess. Yeah, um, I would say look the. The movement, the battle for vote wasn't that you had to vote. It was that you wanted that right to vote. Mm-hmm. I think in that historical context, you know, he should probably vote, right? Just yeah. because that was the battle. But he doesn't have to vote. I think where we fault him is not really, um, I mean, not really paying attention to the importance of, of voting locally, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so on the one hand, he'll organize these grassroots groups and, and he's going to give them money. But I think the next step is to, you know, talk to them about voting and their and their political needs. But also, you know, now that he has this platform and everybody's listening, really talk to the younger generation too that that aren't in that Bay Area where he's helping them out, right? Mm-hmm. Helping these grassroots orgs, but across the country, and really tell them how how much power they can have um, locally, right? Mm-hmm. If, if if they vote and if they organize. Um, but again, like I said before, Kaepernick, a lot of this understanding is is new for him, and I think um, I think he learned from that, right? A lot of it, what he's coming to is, is stuff he's reading about, people he's talking to, and this is a slow but powerful transition of, of this guy becoming an activist. And I, I would like to think, you know, the next time there's some major issues on the, on the ballot, um, even if he doesn't get involved nationally, but, but locally, he'll, he'll, he, you know, he'll have something to say sure. and, and vote. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and I, I, res- I, I, honestly, I just respect him so much for what he was doing because it, he didn't even make a big deal out of it at first, right? He, it was somebody else that noticed that he was doing this a couple games into the season, right? I mean, it wasn't like he big yeah. did a big press conference about it. It was no. just somebody noticed, and they were like, "Hey, why are you doing this?" And he was like, "Well, it's for this, this, and this." And it's like, okay, well, I, you know, that's that's how you feel, you know. I, I just didn't understand the the pure rage that people felt towards him. It's just like he, he's not stopping you from standing. And do what you need to do, you know. So yeah, no, I think that's the. I think it's what I like most about it is that he he hasn't really centered himself. Mm-hmm. He's made it even in the protests, and then you know the people he's helping. It's not about you know what I think is best for the community. It's mm-hmm. about here, you know, here's this money. You know, do what you need to do best, and that's important because. You know, funding for these these groups is so hard. Mm-hmm. And usually, it's attached with something, right? It's, it's you know, there's only so many local people to, to give money to these these grassroots orgs, mm-hmm. or you know, national groups to give money to these grassroots orgs. And and when they get money, there's strings attached, right? Mm-hmm. But Kaepernick then 
picking out these grassroots orgs and then letting them, it seems like he's letting them kind of uh, control what's going on in their community. That's, mm-hmm. I think that's his, that's why I like what he's doing. I think that's where he's having the most uh, powerful impact. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, kind of relating to this a little bit, it's another thing I've heard, I, I guess I heard it again, I was watching that Dave Chappelle thing, but he was basically like, uh, you know, endorsement deals, this is why this is harder to do now, basically, it was his point was that if, you know, back in the day, if we had, you know, Muhammad Ali with, you know, all these uh, endorsement deals, billion dollar uh, shoe deals or whatever, you wouldn't have seen the activism, because there's a there's a dollar sign attached to their uh, work now. Do you, do you think, do you think there's a, a, a correlation there between the rise of these enormous endorsement deals and people not speaking out quite as freely as, as they might have in the past. Um, yeah, kind of, you know, it's, you know, the Jordan rules, you know, following Jordan and mm-hmm. what he did with his brand. And look, this it's not my money. It's not my career. And I think it's important that these guys get as much as they need to get mm-hmm. knowing that, um, their career is short, right? Mm-hmm. So many people go broke. So many people go bust. So mm-hmm. like, if you have an opportunity to do, a local endorsement deal, right? You have to feed your family. You have to do that. Um, so I do think that that's part of it, right? Um, mm-hmm. That that people are silenced. But I also think that there are some guys who it shouldn't matter, right? It shouldn't matter, you know, with a LeBron James or anybody like that. Mm-hmm. You should actually be using those companies to, to, to create change um, beyond just like that kind of Nike commercial. Mm-hmm. really using those billions of dollars that they have to, to, to do the projects that he wants and do the projects that the community needs. But you're right, um, just historically on endorsement deals, another, very few of those athletes in the past had any kind of deals. Mm-hmm. And when they did, they were chronically um, paid, underpaid, right? Sure. Paid less than, um, than white athletes. And it didn't matter their politics. You know, Willie Mays never really said anything. He was just say, hey, kid. And, and he couldn't command as much endorsement deals as his, his white counterparts. Mm-hmm. Um, so it wasn't really about the politics. It was just about there was no value in those black bodies at that time. But mm-hmm. now there is. Now these companies see that they can sell a lot of stuff with, with black faces. Um, I think that OJ Doc did a good job on that. Oh, man, that was great, yeah. And, and these kids, you know, they, they realize that, you know, they want these endorsement deals. And it also uh, might be the case that some of them might not have anything to say. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's a good so point, too. <laughs> part of why they're quiet. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's definitely a good point. Um, now, somebody who definitely did have something to say, and I've kind of learned this from looking at your Twitter and the things you post, is uh, Jackie Robinson. Um, he was one of my sports heroes growing up, and I loved his story, and I had a glove, signature glove by him. Um, so what have you found out about him in your research? Because it seems like he was a pretty well-known columnist, and he had some pretty pretty sharp opinions for for his time so I, I didn't I didn't realize that so yeah um I think Jackie I think the beautiful thing about Jackie Robinson is that he never wavered um, on who he was and so you know the story goes if you've seen the Jackie Robinson story or 42 mm-hmm. you know Branch Ricky asked him to be silent because you know um, that's what's required at that time they you know America wants their uh, black people in general silent this is part of the Cold War um, you know we don't want to embarrass ourselves you know against you know one of the against Russia so one of the major things in the Cold War and, and most of the criticism about the U.S. Um, at this time is their racial policies globally mm-hmm. and so 
the real conscious about, you know, Ricky's real conscious about someone like a Jackie Robinson not saying anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, like three years into his career, um, he gives them what Jackie calls his freedom papers. Mm-hmm. And here's this guy who, who you know, been through it all with racism within the last, you know, since 1945 mm-hmm. uh, in baseball. But, you know, this terrible time dealing with racism in, in the military. And he just unleashed. Um, and, and he uh, spoke truth to power, um, talked about uh, lynching, talked about police brutality, mm-hmm. talked about um, education, talked about, you know, uh, black economics. I mean, every subject, um, if there was something he, he, he discussed, and after his career, he has a column in, in first in a, in a white daily press, but um, they picked him up at the black newspapers. And so when you're going through these microphone reels of black newspapers, um, you'll see his, his um, columns. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, he's very, very eloquent, and he has a, he has a lot of sharp things to say about the GOP for sure. Um, yeah. But uh, so I, we're going through March Madness right now, um, and so this is kind of top of mind or whatever. And uh, paying college players has always been a big issue. Um, the 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 other side, the flip side, I believe. First of all, the college players should be paid. Um, but the pushback I've gotten to that is uh, kind of twofold. The first is where do we draw the line between amateur and professional, if that's the case? And then the other question is uh, do we pay all the players and all the positions and all the sports the same? Because we know that certain sports bring in more money than, than others. So what would what is your take on all that? Yeah, I think um, for me, I'm like, man, I, I don't I don't want to say how much you get paid, but I don't get paid as much as the people who will get paid to figure this out. Mm-hmm. Uh, right? Like, like I think when, when people ask, like, well, you know, should women get paid? And certainly, yes. Um, should a quarterback get as much as the offensive lineman? Uh, how much is they should get paid? I don't know if that's necessarily what we need to do now. I think the most important thing is start with they need to get paid. Um, right? And I think mm-hmm. once you start saying, like, breaking it down between positions and sports, I think it's, it's just used as a distraction, right? So you don't have to deal with the reality that these kids are exploited. So mm-hmm. I think you need to start with the fact they're exploited, they need to get something, and then build from there. Um, and it doesn't have to be millions of dollars. Um, the, the, the reality is, is that, you know, look, if you have 60-plus uh, big-time D1 teams and each team has 80 scholarships, that's, that's a lot of people. Mm-hmm. It's way more than... Uh, the NFL, that's way more than NBA, so the, so the, the money won't, won't be there, um, so you're not going to get those million-dollar, two-million-dollar contracts. Mm-hmm. But they, they need something. Um, again, what they need, um, I, I don't want to figure that out unless they're, you know, if you're going to pay me millions of dollars to figure that out, <laughs> I'll be figure that out. Um, but, but they need something. Uh-huh. And the sad part is, is that, you know, part of this means, too, that other sports will go to club sports, and that's um, and that's okay with me. It's a it's a big movement on college campuses. Um, in my classes, I I tend to treat those students who play a club sports just like the, the student who who plays, mm-hmm. you know, who has the scholarship. So you know, like club sports, right? This weekend, if uh, volleyball, there's the major national tournament in St. Louis. Students are going to miss that. Um, the kid who's the wrestler, uh, the club wrestler, who, who you know he had to make some classes uh, because of practice or unfortunately cutting weight. I'm like, all right, let's talk about this um, because I because I understand they have their dreams and and those scholarships aren't there for them. I um, mean, I think that's what's going to happen more um, 
once we get into paying players, and I think professors and, and schools need to, to realize that. Um, hmm. And there's nothing wrong with the club sports model. Right, right. Yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't thought about that, but I guess there's going to be other effects uh, from that. So uh, another uh, another sports uh, thing that I, I kind of have, a I guess, a controversial opinion on is I don't really have a problem with performance-enhancing drugs in sports. I don't really see the big deal. You know, if you gave me performance-enhancing drugs, I'm not going to hit a home run or, or anything. Yeah. I couldn't do that anyway. So <laughs> I just feel like it's it's kind of using what you already have. And, you know, the, the other thing is I, I think that you go back to, like uh, Babe Ruth and stuff, and you know that I'm sure he was taking whatever injections he could get of whatever suspect uh, snake oil <laughs> material that yeah. he could get his hands on. So I'm sure there was no drug testing back then. So who knows? But um, what is your take on performance enhancing drugs in sports? And do you think we should? How should we deal with like the steroid era of baseball, for example? I guess. Well, I think back up on, on Babe Ruth. I think Babe Ruth had his. his performance enhancing drug and that was called uh, segregation. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, not playing against the Negro Leagues probably helped him right. a great, great deal. <laughs> Face, you know, cannibal Dick Reddy, right? Um, <laughs> then your numbers are going to be up there. Yes, absolutely. Um, but, but in regard to the drugs today, I look, I want to be entertained. I, I want, mm-hmm. um, you know, I want to, on the one hand, I want to be entertained. I don't, you know, if guys are running nine seconds in a hundred meters, I think that's cool. Um, you know, as long as they're they're healthy and they know what they're getting into, if guys are hitting seventy home runs. I, I'm I'm fine with that. Um, and I think in this context too, I think the NBA could solve a lot of these problems if they. I mean, like you might not have to rest players if you let them dope a little. You know, blood dope a little bit. Mm-hmm. Or and I don't know what their policy is. I don't know if these guys can. Um, are, are passing these these tests, um, right? You know, but a lot of the resting is coming when there is more testing, and and, and not everybody's, you know, Yakim Noah and reading the wrong uh, labels. Um, so so I think it, that would improve sports, right? If you mm-hmm. someone like LeBron um, get on something that that you know he could play eighty two games, and I think the other thing too is on, on drugs is on the one hand there's performance enhancing drugs, and then there's drugs like like marijuana mm-hmm. and I think that they need to be especially in the NFL they need to be more kind of relaxed about that oh, yeah. um, let their players um, you know have you know have that opportunity to, to, to pursue other uh, means to get healthy yeah absolutely I mean and also considering the alternatives with opioids and people getting hooked on pills and stuff too that's always you know it's probably better to be doing something like that than that so yeah. especially with what they put their bodies through but um, since you since you are on campus and it's been a little bit since I've since I was a student college student um, there's there's been a thing with with you know free speech on, on campus uh, people yeah. talk about this all the time um, do you personally see a shift in your time on on campus now is it harder to say what you need to say when you need to say it um you know there's a our, our school newspaper has an article on that and i from from last week and i have not it's on my desk <laughs> like, i want to read this um but i have not read it yet i know we're getting we got sued by one of those groups uh, not allowing free speech but i think sometimes and we have to be clear about this some people just want free speech just so they could be racist and i think that's where a lot of this is going um and to talk about sports right that wisconsin game mm-hmm. um where the people dressed up in the halloween costume right with the obama and the, and the noose right the, the lynching noose um, at the wisconsin nebraska right. game and, and wisconsin's first response was 
you know, this is about free speech. And then when you look deeper into what Nebraska does is that Nebraska allows this kind of stuff, but it seems like they allow it as, um, you know, to, and it's, it's generally the people, how can I say, it's generally the people who want to say, like, racist stuff or xenophobic stuff or misogynistic stuff. Mm-hmm. They just want a, a platform to say it. Mm-hmm. I think that's the part I, I, I worry about. You know, here at my school, there's, um, like, I wish uh, students could say, say more. Um, we do have two spots, right, two free speech zones. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of students don't like it, no matter what political side of the aisle they're on. Mm-hmm. But I think it is kind of protective because most of the times, uh, the people who are who, who use these zones, um, there's people who, who will, will sit at the free speech zone and yell at you that you're going to hell right, because you're going to college or you go to dances or you do this other stuff. And then there's the people who just put up pictures of, you know, fetuses sure. going around. And so, so you can imagine what if you had to come out of the classroom and this is what you're hit with all the time. Yeah. And there is no, there's, there's no limit to it. Right. But the reality is that there are some, there are ways to work with the university. I've known, I've um, helped students out or, you know, supported several student protests and, and, you know, the university here is willing to work with, with them, um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and there's pros and cons to that. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, I think as long as you're, you're trying to, to, to use your platform to, to, to create a better, you know, better space for everybody, that's fine. If you're doing it just so you can say racist rhetoric, then, you know, do that, you know, yeah. do that in your dorm room or, or, or wherever you've done it in the past. <laughs> go back to wherever that was. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so as far as like trigger warnings go, because I mean, you, you know, you're a history teacher, you, you know, history's filled with, with upsetting things. Um, yeah. And so I imagine that that's something you've had to grapple with. What is your take on that? Yeah, I, I think you're right. I come from from a different perspective. I've seen stuff, and I think we have to be able to wrestle with this um, this stuff. So, like for instance, if we do, um, when we talk about Emmett Till, we talk about lynching. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes I don't, you know, tell them like, "Hey, man, this this picture you're gonna see is pretty bad," um, because I think they need to be put in that in that position mm-hmm. uh, to to really see what the end result of the hate and violence are. Sometimes, yeah. Um, it is, you know, in these you know, these bodies hanging from these trees. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a really good YouTube clip I show. Somebody put together, um, there's this book called Without Sanctuary, which is a, um, a book of postcard stamps of lynchings. Mm-hmm. And somebody um, put it together, you know, put the pictures together to Billie Holiday's Strange Fruit. And mm-hmm. so you hear the song and then you see these images and it really grabs students. Um, on that video, there is a warning, and I, and I do tell them because you know you're going to see dead bodies hanging from the tree. Mm-hmm. But I think you know students need to need this, and I think that it's important um, because I, you know, so much of our thought of American history, these great great people doing great things, mm-hmm. and 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 I think it's important for them to understand that a lot of bad stuff happened for us to get to this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and they need to know that. I mean, that's, you can't hide that from them. Right. Um, and it doesn't mean that, that we're we're bad, um, but it means we've done bad things. And part of being an adult, part of being a student for them is, is, is to critically think about this and, and wrestle with this. Mm-hmm. And then make sure that, that this doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, there's there's even a kind of a modern day corollary to that because, of course, you have all these police shootings and things like that, and people will share those on social media, kind of uh, without regard to you know what people are about to see, and, and people are sometimes yeah. like, oh, hey, I'd like a warning before you show me somebody getting killed. But at the same time, you know, I do think back to Emmett Till, and I think back to his mother intentionally having that open casket just for that you know purpose to being like, look, look what they did. You know, we're not going to cover this up. We have to show this. So I don't know. I, I think there's there's value in you know kind of showing people what actually happened and especially at a university you're, you're yeah. there to confront you know uncomfortable things so yeah but, no but you're right like twitter that's different like you know that you scroll down something and some picture pops up yeah right that's, that's it's a little a different oh. yeah so i think on that on that hey you should have something up sure yeah know. you should also turn your auto play off i guess would be the other thing yeah, but. yeah i'm not uh, i don't know how to do that on technology so yeah. <laughs> right, right. Um, now, there's another thing on campuses recently that I've seen. Uh, the Yale was the most recent one I saw where they re- were renaming uh, Calhoun College. Uh, of course, John C. Calhoun, one of the, the bigger proponents of uh, racism and slavery in our country. Um, I forget, who did, do you know who they changed it to? I, I didn't catch that. Um, I thought it was an ancestor of somebody who went there. Gotcha. I yeah. Can't, I can't remember, though. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, it was it was, it was was somebody less, less problematic anyway, but... Um, so what's your take on that again from a historical perspective because there is the argument that uh, we change these things we kind of lose something you know we, we you know we don't remember the past because we keep changing the buildings and then people don't think about it anymore or do you think that this is you know this is something we need to do uh, that's, that's, um, that's a tough one like so I think a universe there's got to be something right mm-hmm. um, you don't want to celebrate these people who, who, who stood for horrific things um, and that's kind of that's created the problems that we have. Mm-hmm. Uh, but on the one hand, you, um, you need to know that these people who we celebrate did horrific things, and so there's got to be a, a happy middle zone or a not so happy middle zone where where people you know understand what what Calhoun did or understood that you know you know Wilson you know Woodrow Wilson has you know maybe his his uh, foreign policy was great for America, but, you know, he segregated D.C. and his foreign policy wasn't great for other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and so there, that's, there's got to be a space where we can learn about that. But I do think, um, like, bridges and monuments, there should be plaques up, um, a lot of plaques up, a lot of markers up about, about you know, what people did. Um, Mm-hmm. Because you know these, like this, you know, kids need to know. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we're at this time where where it's important as, as a nation, I think, you know, as a divided nation. And we've always been pretty divided, but now more so, more so than ever um, in recent years. That mm-hmm. you know, this next generation coming up needs to learn from from people's mistakes because you know these people did. You know, the people who did. You know, if you're you're promoting slavery, that you know. That created a problem that's you know long lasting in our society. You promoted Jim Crow. That's that's a problem that that mm-hmm. we haven't um, got past, and, and and kids need to know that this is not okay, right? Yeah. Like, the rhetoric you hear from forty five, the rhetoric you've heard from the attorney general, like this stuff doesn't help anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's important that that you know kids, of, you know, my kids know this, and and other. And that baby that I heard in the background. I can't tell you how hard I related to that BBC uh, yeah, guy. That yeah, was. I'm like, yeah. oh, it's my life. Okay. <laughs> no, that's my life. Um, like when people say, "Hey, can I can I interview you?" My response is like, 
do you want kids in the bathroom or not? Because here are the no kids times I yeah. do, and that's like, and then some people will be like, yeah, I'm good. I got kids at home. Like, I'm used to it. And other people are like, uh, we'll, we'll do 930 at night. <laughs> Yeah, my uh, my two year old son has been a, a part of pretty much every episode of this podcast, one way or another. So he's oh, made it, he's yeah. made his voice heard. So. <laughs> that's important, right? They need to. Uh, I mean, it's, I think it's it's annoying sometimes because there are some things you have to get done, but I think it's important for them to to, to see us sure. get work done and, and to be part of that. Um, Absolutely, right? And I think it's healthy for us. To, uh-huh. um, for us to kind of be there with them. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, kind of going back to the the idea of, of people from the past uh, as we see them today. Um, you know, is, do you think it's fair to judge people by the standards of today? You know, obviously you have someone like John C. Calhoun, and he was even extreme in his own time. But um, you know, for example, we go back uh, to the founding fathers, and, and a fair amount number of them were slaveholders. And um, you know, I you know I eat meat, and you know, in two hundred years, is that going to be seen the same way? I don't don't know maybe i hope not because yeah, no. i'll be i'll be dead to rights on that but um you know how do do you think that there's uh, something where we shouldn't judge people by the standards of today or we should take it in context or how do you view that no um i think it's always important to put in historical context but it's also always important to say like only people's bad um, and that's part of who we are, right? Um, and I think that's where we get away from. Like, we, unless you're not, you know, academics do this, but just because people, you know, outside of academia, right, this, this idea that we rarely teach them that, like, look, we have democracy and freedom because there's slavery, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's very important that these founding fathers, you know, they had slaves and they wrote these documents about freedom because they knew what slavery was truly like. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's important to, to tell people that, look, this is this is a problem. This was a problem. Um, and when people pull out the, the mini constitution uh, from their, uh, you know, pockets, right, because they want to be strict constructionists on mm-hmm. the constitution, it's also important to like, hey, wait a minute, well, you know, what does this mean, right? Because mm-hmm. that talks about three-fifths of a person there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that talks about that, you know, that there is, there's a fugitive slave law in, embedded in our constitution. Um, there's talks about without saying the word slavery that, that they're going to end um, slavery, the transportation of slaves in 1808. That's in that you know, that great document. Um, and so it's important to teach people, right? To, to tell them, like, wait, hold on. Like, what do you really mean? Um, and then force people to kind of wrestle with this history. Um, to, to, I mean, and, and this time, too, when so much of the rhetoric is make America great again. And, and um, when you talk about slavery, you talk about, you know, these great, these great people in history, Andrew Jackson, for instance, um, you know, what do you really mean? And, and what does this mean for, you know, people who don't look like you? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's important, right? To, uh, people do that, you know, Andrew Jackson was a man of his times. You know, that's not a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the times were pretty messed up then because he did some yeah. horrible, horrible things. Yeah. Um, no, and in sports, we kind of do that too, you know. Jim Jeffries, you know, um, uh, you know, Jim Jeffries, right, who, who you know, he, he was a man of his time. He didn't want to fight black fighters, but it's like, well, that's not necessarily a good thing either, right? Mm-hmm. The question of that time. Um, and when you start talking about that, you start questioning that, then I think the, the next generation, you know, these generations will build on that and, and realize, that, you know, you can't treat people like that. Mm-hmm. 
Absolutely. Well, speaking of history in our current administration, um, the Trump administration seems to be ignorant of history on an unprecedented level, and uh, I can't tell if that they just don't know it and they are just stumbling through, or if they're intentionally warping it. Uh, you have Ben Carson calling slaves uh, immigrants, and, and Betsy DeVos calling uh, historically black colleges and universities pioneers of school choice. Um, you mentioned <laughs> Trump's love for Andrew Jackson. Uh, what, what do you make of all that? I mean, are they trying to change how we think of the past, or are they they're just clueless? I can't tell. Um, they don't want to wrestle with the past. I mean, to 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 to, to be true and not to call, um, you know, HBCUs school choices to really say that Jim Crow existed and and to say that that existed for for a long time and 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 you know we're starting at different starting points right when it comes to education and and you know people are racist and they don't want to deal with that mm-hmm. um, the legacy of Jim Crow um, they just want to act like you know. There, there, you know, there's Jim Crow. Whoa, look at these schools that form. Um, you know, Andrew Jackson, you want to celebrate, well, you know, there's democracy and populism. But, you know, you know, women weren't voting. Um, most black people who had to vote in the North, a lot of them lost the vote um, to allow white people to vote. Mm-hmm. Um, then there's slavery. Then there's the, the, the Trail of Tears. And, and so they, they don't want to wrestle... Uh, with the bad parts of the past. And this, I think you see this in, in students, right? There's only, if I teach a, a U.S. history, lower level U.S. history class from Columbus, you know, to the present, you know, that means we're going to have to talk about a lot, of, a lot of things that students don't want to talk about. Mm-hmm. And that means at the end of the year when they do evaluations, like, oh, we talk too much about black history. And I'm looking through, I'm like, dang, you know, this, this is part of American history. But so when you have this idea that we're just going to celebrate Jackson, we're just going to call segregation choice, um, those you know the people younger than you really start to believe that, and and really start to believe that that you know there there was never really any racial hurdles in the way or any gender hurdles in the way of anybody, mm-hmm. um, and then that I think that affects policies, that affects how, how they look at you uh, moving forward, that affects political policy. So I think it's dangerous for them to, to lie about history. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Well, I mean, there's, I don't know if you've been following this, but there's a bill in Arkansas to ban uh, Howard Zinn's People's History of the United States in, in schools in that state. Um, I ended up sending my copy to his teacher there because I would already read it. But um, it's like, yeah, they don't even want people to, to know this kind of stuff. And we just want to focus on the, the things they want us to focus on. But yeah, it's like you said, well, trying to talk about American history without talking about black history seems kind of futile. It's, it's a, that's a pretty short book right there. So. Yeah, yeah, well, that's what we do. Um, and we try to do that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, so, since you're a historian, and uh, can you please break down for me once and all for all? Because I've I've struggled with this myself. Um, so, Democrats and Republicans, I, I, they don't mean what they did at the time of the Civil War. And I know there was a change in between then. And the I, there obviously the failure of Reconstruction was one thing, and the you know sixty four Civil Rights Act was another. But how did they basically switch sides because you always hear like, oh, Abraham Lincoln, you know, he's a Republican, and the Ku Klux Klan, that was Democrats. But it's like, yeah. what? I, there, there, something happened. I don't really know. But can you explain that? Yeah, uh, just briefly. You know, you know, history happens, right? Uh, and so, uh, look, Lincoln. It's not like Lincoln. You know, they're the Republicans and they're they're, they're so-called party of freedom, but. Um, that doesn't mean they're not anti-black, and, and I think we have to establish that too. Uh, doesn't you know Lincoln? If he had his druthers, you know, he'd put the 
kill the initiative, you know, as long as he has slavery. But he also um, suggested that blacks go somewhere else, right? Mm. Um, um, lots of death, lots of murder and violence uh, during Reconstruction with, with Republican leadership in charge, um, and not a lot of help from the federal government, especially, you know, 1877, post-1877. Uh, but, you know, because of Lincoln, right, and, and because of uh, Emancipation Proclamation and the 13th Amendment, um, and then 14th Amendment, 15th Amendment, a lot of blacks, uh, overwhelming majority of blacks were Republican in the South, and that's where they were. Mm-hmm. In the cities, you'll start to see some blacks going Democrat um, as early as the you know, 1880s, and that's just, this is the way the political system worked. Um, kind of kickbacks and stuff like that, and that kind of forms some political power there. Um, but largely, blacks remain Republican um, until like the 1930s, and you'll start to see a shift. Now, now, what's going to happen is, just real quick, um, most blacks in the South, like, mm-hmm. I would say 95% plus blacks in the South, will lose their vote between 1890 and early 1900s. So the way that's taken away is poll tax, mm-hmm. uh, literacy and understanding clause, uh, white primaries, and then the grandfather clause. So the grandfather clause is illegal in 1915. White primary is illegal in 1944. 1944. But the literacy and understanding clause and, and the poll tax, really, that's what, you know, if you've ever seen Selma, that's kind of what they're battling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, more so literacy and understanding clause. Mm-hmm. Um, so most blacks don't have the vote in the South. Slowly but surely, you'll start to see blacks in the North um, with the Great Migration, right, during World War One, mm-hmm. where many blacks move north, uh, most of them will, will move there, and there's a split, Republican and Democrat, but slowly they'll, they'll go more towards this, this you know, northern Democratic Party, uh, which is completely different than the southern Democratic Party. So mm-hmm. the South is solidly Democrat because right. blacks aren't voting Republicans. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and you'll start to see a clear shift by the 1936, where the majority of blacks in the north will go Democrat, um, and that's because FDR and the New Deal um, it's not a perfect deal for blacks, but it's better than what they had gotten under under Hoover. Um, so most blacks vote Hoover 32, they mm-hmm. don't in 36. Um, and so blacks will slowly start to move towards the Democratic Party. With the South and the Democrats, you'll see 1947, 1948, they'll start to split. They'll remain Democrats, but there'll be some Dixiecrats, right? Who, mm-hmm. And they're the ones who, who get upset at something like a Truman who now wants to talk about civil rights, right? He wants to desegregate the military. So what, you know, if you're the South, well, what's next? Mm-hmm. Um, and then if we could just kind of quickly go forward about 20 years, right, the civil rights movement, um, and then it's under Democratic leadership that you get um, civil rights under LBJ, and you get the voting rights under LBJ, um, and that's really going to turn the South away, a lot of the South away from the Democratic Party and start to push them into the Republican Party, but it's still important to note that, you know, George Wallace um, made huge inroads in the Democratic Party in 68, 72, I believe in 1972, this guy who was an extreme segregationist won Michigan. Um, so you kind of see, just on that, even in the North now, the, the Democratic Party is starting to slowly move towards the, the middle, start to go right. And, and Nixon, when he becomes president, he'll start to capitalize out even more and shift some of these, these Democrats uh to, to the right, um, mm-hmm. and these ones are, are the ones upset about the civil rights movement, upset about affirmative action, mm-hmm. upset about the free speech movement, the Vietnam protests. Right? He'll call these people a silent majority. Mm-hmm. I think this is where our, 
politics are going. Uh, on the Republican side, too, besides Nixon, you have Goldwater, who has a very famous um, you know, piece. I believe it's his 1964 piece about you know the new conservative kind of moving to this party of freedom. Uh, that's where that a lot of that starts. Where you talk about the party of freedom, lack of federal government, and, and that's where that's where we're at. What's going on now? I got no clue. It seems that there's this right. It's a combination of this kind of economic anxiety, you know, air quotes, and you know what that means. Uh, plus, like these hardcore freedom party uh, people, you know, it's kind of very it's a mix, right? Mm-hmm. And, and it seems, and, and not to get myself in trouble, but it seems that most people know what's going on at the top is wrong, but they want to stick to their principles and their ideologies, and they want to get stuff passed. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's so much fight because they can't get stuff done. And so I don't know what what's going to happen. Right, this kind of if we're going to see if you're going to still have this kind of big, you know, big R, big D parties, or things are going to split because. On the other side, you have Democrats pushing, you know, people they vote for to, to, to stand up against this, to have a backbone. And, mm-hmm. and is that going to push the party more, you know, to the left and get some people out of there? So it's an interesting time we live uh, to kind of study these changes. Yeah. I absolutely. hope that wasn't too long. No, that was that was great. Thank you. I appreciate that. I've always, I've always wondered about that. Um, so uh, since we're getting towards the end here, I uh, wanted to kind of leave it on a more fun note. Uh, what is your uh, favorite sports movie of all time? Ooh. Um, so documentary or movie? You can go either. We can do, we can do both. Okay, so if we do documentary, I really like, um, you know, that OJ doc. Oh, that was so good. Um, so it, it passed. It went out there high. So my top three would be that OJ doc. I like Black Magic, which is about, um, so ESPN did this almost a decade ago about um, HBCUs of black colleges and basketball. Mm. And I really like Hugh Cooper. Oh yeah, um, mm-hmm. yeah. As far as just straight sports movies, um, I'm a big Rocky guy. Like I like, like in a sense, like I own them. And then, but if they come on, right? Like that's the test. Like if they come on TV, mm-hmm. will I sit there and watch bits and pieces of it? And the answer is yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I like, I like, you know, any of them that come on, even, even five, even, even five. Wow, you're John, hardcore. <laughs> I, I won't watch it all, but I'll watch enough of it to like get you know get excited. My like, sure. really good. No, they, but they're you know they're really really good. Um, for those listeners out there, if you want an oldie but goodie, one that's about the exploitation and and, and amateurism of college sports, um, nineteen thirty three. It's uh, called College Coach. Mm. Um, and it starts Pat O'Brien, who also stars Newt Rockney, Newt Rockney All American. And this one, college coach, is about um, the sham of amateurism, and essentially they hire this coach. Uh, we'll call him Nick Saban. Not it. No, they hire this coach to build their program. Um, and and the university's like, look, we're losing money. We're going to have to close the science buildings. What do we do? And you know, the board of trustees like, let's get this guy from this other school. And some of the people are like. But he hires, he brings in tramp athletes, and tramp athletes are those, uh, are at that time, were the athletes that went from school to school. 
Mm-hmm. The NCA stopped that a long time ago, so you couldn't just go from school to school and be mm-hmm. eligible, right? And, um, and, and the reason why you're going to school to school is because you're getting something. And so mm-hmm. it shows that these guys are getting paid money, you know, car, use of a car, some money, you know, apartments, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, it has good stuff on the scholar athlete. Mm-hmm. Uh, spoiler, one guy quits, the scholar quits football because it takes away from the studies. Mm-hmm. Um it has the guy who dies of a concussion during the game. So it has all this kind of modern stuff that we're talking about set in 1933. The only thing that it doesn't do deal with is, is race, right? Mm-hmm. Because these are, are, are all white schools. Um, mm-hmm. But it's different. It's, it's, you know, it's, if you're into like old black and white movies and they're talking on it, um, that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a good one. Okay, cool. That's a good recommendation, yeah. Um, what was the, the great last the last great history book that you read that you could recommend to us? Oh, man, it's not. It's such a, um, shoot, it's really a hard question because, you know, I'm in, I'm in uh, school mode. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> so, so much of um, what I do is, is, like, kind of prepare for school, so some of the stuff... Uh. Um, I don't really love, but I'll say this, what I read, what I was reading yesterday, um, was by Damian Thomas. It's called Globetrotting. Mm. I believe it just came out on paperback. It was, it was hardback, um, University of Illinois Press. Um, and it's about black athletes and kind of the global image of the Cold War and and how America used black athletes to to sell this idea of racial democracy. Mm. So got a good chapter on um, Jackie Robinson and Paul Robeson um, from, you know, that, that dust-up. It's got a chapter on, on the Globe, the Harlem Globetrotters. Mm-hmm. It's got a chapter on a lot of these track athletes who, who go um, overseas in the 50s and 60s, uh, like a, a Mount Whitfield or someone like that, uh, to t- talk about how great America is to put on these clinics. Um, so it's got a lot of good stuff if you're into, like, the the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Um, and Damian Thomas, he's at, right now, he works at the National the Museum, the African-American History Museum, and he's the one who's the, who's the sports curator. So if you ever get a chance to go to D.C., mm-hmm. uh, go there. Uh, like, go to the Black History Museum. Okay, uh, yeah, I want to, absolutely. Yeah, yeah the sports area is phenomenal. And just some shameless plugs. Can I do shameless plugs? Sure, absolutely. So this year I'll have a book on... Um, like prize fighting, so it's called I Fight for a Living. That's with the University of Illinois Press. That's coming in fall. I think in summer, the book, uh, We Will Win the Day, it's about um, civil rights movement and black athletes. And then um, there's a new book. I have an article in, uh, there's a boxing book, a really good boxing book called The Bittersweet Science. Mm. Um, it's a collection of essays. It's, it'll be out in April. Um, it's, it's really good. Um, the editors are telling me, like, this is going to be like top notch one of the top boxing books a lot of good boxing books out there like with a collection of essays um, mm-hmm. new new scholarship so if you get an opportunity it'll be on Amazon so it's pretty cheap um, towards the end of April so oh great awesome I'll definitely check that out now um, side question about boxing do you think that boxing is being overtaken by MMA and is it losing its relevance because of that uh, that's a tough one I, I, in the context of America mm-hmm. uh I think, sort of, kind of, um, MMA is just is right now. It's, it's still, I think it's still in its fad mode. It's, it's big business, but it's still kind of fad mode. Um, they only have a few fighters they can market, so they'll struggle. Um, I think globally, boxing is still a big sport. Um, so I don't know if it's going to be overtaken. There's a lot of really good fighters. 
I think um, the problem, I think the advantage MMA has over boxing is, and, and I think a lot of it comes down to um, like where just where we're at as a society, who we like quick, you know, we're you know, quick news, quick knockout stuff, and so you get the sense that there might be a knockout all the time in MMA, mm-hmm. uh, whereas boxes, um, they kind of set that up a little bit longer. You're not going to see those one-hitter quitters anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I think MMA has that advantage. I think the other thing is MMA has the advantage is that a lot of their great fighters um, tend to look like their fans. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, look, MMA is very mixed and it's very global. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at, at, at the beginning, a lot of its great fighters, you know, look like its fans. Um, and mm-hmm. That's important for a lot of the fan base, whereas boxing doesn't look like that and has to look like that for a while. And they're missing, um, you know, Floyd's retired, and so they're missing kind of a dynamic character. Mm-hmm. As much as he was a jerk, uh, he was a dynamic character <laughs> that put butts in the seats. But there's mm-hmm. a lot of really good quality fighters that people should watch. Yeah. Um, another question I thought of when you were talking was, um, you know, people talk about the concussion thing in, in football. Um, how is that uh, translated to boxing and things like that? And do you see that being a problem going forward? Um, that's been a problem, you know. So we talk about in boxing, they call it uh, being punch drunk, right? Mm-hmm. And, and they knew about this, that this is a problem as early as the 1920s. Like Congress knew about it, everybody knew mm-hmm. about it. Um, so, so, so boxing has done, dealt, dealt with this. Boxing, um, has dealt with this issue that's too violent since the beginning. True. Yeah. Um, and, and it lives on because people want to see violence deep down inside. Yep. They want to see violence. Um, and so that's the thing. NFL is losing, um, you know, it seems like they're losing you know, viewership and it's not because of Kaepernick. It's, it's because people everywhere in the society that want to see big hits. Mm-hmm. Um, you sold this game this way um, and so I, I think they're losing that but I also think that people want to be entertained and, and if you could figure out a way to, to you know you'll see a lot of little guys like uh, what's his name Trayvon or Tavon Austin out there these kind of rare these guys or um, the kid from from, from the, you know from the Chiefs the, the really fast guy mm-hmm. um, you know they're going to start getting these kids more these smaller guys these speedy guys more out in space and I, I think people are going to I think it's going to change the game. Mm-hmm. So the attendance won't, the attendance and viewership will, will pick back up. Right, right, definitely. Uh, so last question here, what music have you been listening to lately? I haven't bought a CD in a long, long, long time. <laughs> uh, I don't buy CDs. I don't download stuff. I just listen uh, to what's on the radio. And the majority of the times I have my kids in the car. So, you know, hits one. Disney Channel, whatever's on the XM. Yep. Um, and then when they're out of the car, it's either, you know, ESPN talk or um, the backspin. So, mm-hmm. some, you know, something that kind of keeps you grounded, kind of reflect on the past. Mm-hmm. So that's it. Sorry, I got a bland ad. Like the last CD I, re- I truly bought was uh, uh, Master P Ghetto D. Wow. <laughs> so it has been quite a while. And I lost it. I lost it. So, I mean, that was it. The last time I went to buy something for myself. Um, and that was like the third time I bought it because I lost the other two. Right. Um, like, I'm not. And and I think my CD player and, and the cars got, you know, stuff stuck in it. I think um, the kid put, like, you know, money in there one time. <laughs> yeah, so there's no CDs going in there. <laughs> 
I think that's the most, I ask that every episode, and that's the probably most interesting answer I've gotten so far. <laughs> I like <Yeah>. it. <laughs> you win the prize. But um, yeah. was there anything else I didn't ask you about that you want to get in there before we go? No, I'm, I'm, no, I'm, I'm good. This is, um, no, this has been good. It's been a quick hour, so thank you. Yeah, yeah it's been fun. So uh, I hope to talk to you again soon, and uh, yeah, keep keep doing what you're doing, because I really yeah. do enjoy it. So. And, uh, send me a link, so okay, yeah. Yeah, I'll send you one that's up. So, all right, well, good talking to you. Talk to you soon. Bye. If you enjoy this podcast, there are several ways to support it. I have a Patreon account, which can be found at www.patreon.com forward slash Rob Burgess Show Patreon. I hope you'll consider supporting in any amount. Also, please make sure to comment, follow, like, subscribe, share, rate, and review the podcast everywhere it's available, which includes iTunes, YouTube, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, Facebook, Twitter, Internet Archive, TuneIn, and RSS. It really helps.
The official website for the podcast is www.therobburgessshow.com. You can find out more about me by visiting my website, www.thisburgess.com. Until next time.